Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, finally a verdict has come down in the Harvey Weinstein case. The blockades come down and Alberta loses another energy project. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation is fact-checking Ontario teachers unions and they don't pass. And is condom use down in Canada? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, uh, in case you haven't uh, heard, uh, Harvey Weinstein convicted on two counts. Uh, Where does this leave the Me Too movement and what does this change moving forward? Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, Alyssa PR. She is with us now. Alyssa, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. As always, Scott. Your thoughts on how this has all turned out, how it's all gone down. Well, I think that many people are surprised. And when I was doing a recent uh, scan of Twitter and also of Instagram, I think a lot of other a lot of people were surprised. And people are really looking at this as a watershed moment for the Me Too movement and for women in general. Why do you think uh, everybody would be surprised? Some many are surprised at this. Well, remember, a lot of these allegations happened many years ago, and the court also allowed other women whose testimonies were similar to those of the ones of the two that were going forward in order to help substantiate their case. And I have to say, like, you know, from someone who took advantage of mainstream media to the best of her ability, Weinstein's lawyer, Donna Rotuno, was excellent with the media. And, you know, she was doing one-on-one interviews with influential reporters. For example, you know, I heard a whole podcast of her case and defending Harvey Weinstein on the New York Times The Daily. And she wasn't afraid to put herself out there, nor was she afraid to address the question of, you know, why are you as a woman defending someone like this? And her whole um, narrative was really, you know, everybody is is allowed due process. And if you look at what she's saying today, which I find very interesting, is that she feels that uh, he was really judged in the court of public opinion. And it was really more of the public outrage over Weinstein's behavior that branded him a rapist without due process. So it's interesting to see if that narrative will play out in the next uh, 48 to 72 hours. We should also clarify, Weinstein uh, convicted of felony sex crime and rape, but acquitted of uh, the most serious charges against him, which is predatory sexual assault. Does that change anything in anyone's mind? You know, I think that, you know, it's interesting. It's it's a very good comment that you make, because I think that when people read headlines, do they get right down to the nitty gritty as to what he was, um, you know, uh, what he was found guilty over versus what he wasn't? Yeah, there are some people who will who will do that and say, well, the first charge didn't really hold, but the other ones, the lesser ones did. So what does that really mean? Uh, At the end of the day, I think that the headline is Weinstein is found guilty. And that puts a real stake in the ground. And if anybody was ever in any doubt that such behavior could get you into trouble, real trouble, even call it Weinstein trouble, then they know that now. This is a this is a very, very important precedent. And you and I have talked about how the Me Too movement has certainly had its ups and its downs. And any new movement will. You know, it all comes out with, um, you know, you come out with the best of intentions. And then there are some things or some issues that will actually try and undercut that. This particular judgment absolutely gives this um, movement some great momentum in a very positive direction. How does this change the issue, especially in regard to other industries, i.e. the music industry? I mean, because this came out with uh, all guns a-blazing for a while, and then theme, everybody thought this would infiltrate all industries. I mean, I'm sure it has a lot of, but there's some that it hasn't yet. Um, is this, does this reignite the Me Too movement? Yes, it does reignite the movement, but I think that your question about does this, how does this uh, replicate in other industries... I don't think it really matters what what the industry is, Scott. I think what matters is the behavior and whether the behavior can be tolerated or not and whether women feel that they have recourse or not to complain. Um, You know, we still read a lot of stories in the mainstream media about how, you know, women have been sexually uh, abused in the workplace, but their cries fell on deaf ears. 
I don't think that that's going to play anymore. There are lots of times when HR departments would rather just, you know, push this all under the carpet and hope that and hope that it goes away. The issue is is that we no longer have to wait for mainstream media to report on our stories. We as citizens can report on them ourselves. I mean, do do I think that this is going to all of a sudden, you know, open up the floodgates and women are going to come running out and, and, and dredging up allegations from 10, 20 years ago? Uh, no. Do I think that there are some long-held secrets that people want dealt with uh, and want justice for? Yes, I think we are going to see some of those. But I don't think it really matters what industry it is. I think what we're talking about, whether a behavior is acceptable or non-acceptable. So is that it for for Weinstein? I mean, is that it? Um, Will we talk about this again? Will we hear from him again? Well, we'll talk about it next week when they pass down the judgment right now. I mean, I was just reading as many news reports as I could before I came on with you. And, uh, you know, when they went to come and get him, I think he was, you know, they take him from the courtroom and they put him in, in handcuffs. Yeah. And I, from what jail. I read, you know, yeah. he, was, he was shocked and he has to wait in jail for his hearing. And then we are going to hear what the sentence is. So, you know, right now you have this watershed moment. Now, he can get anywhere from what I've read um, from 5 to 29 years. So depending on what that sentence is, will absolutely sort of put the cap on how important this decision was. So if he gets off with a light sentence, let's say the lightest sentence of five years, and, and, and he may. I mean, you know, he's got great lawyers. They, they're still very, very connected. You know, who knows? Maybe, you know, that the the court felt that there was no way that he wasn't going to get off on all charges, and this is the... The, the, the least of the worst, perhaps. But I think that there will be a whole other layer of narrative that will come once we hear what the sen- sentencing is. Uh, do you think he will f- continue to fight this, or is there too much of a long list of things ahead of him to fight? You know, I'm wondering, um, and I still know I think there were some civil suits happening in yeah, Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, too, actually. yeah. yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how those play out. And, and you know, the people behind those suits may become more emboldened that they actually have a shot here. Uh, I don't think that the story is going to die out. I think that there will be people who will, you know, the way the news cycle runs, Scott, is that, you know, you get your definitive, you know, reportage um, in the first 24 to 48 hours. And then after that, you start to see all the pundits and the columnists and, you know, people with longer form opinion pieces uh, coming out with this. And we're going to be doing it on all all formats, so not just your mainstream media uh, websites, but also, you know, within Twitter and and on Instagram and maybe even on Facebook. So it, I think that the um, I don't want to call it a pundit, but I think that the the deeper narrative will continue to uh, flow, I think, throughout this week, and then it will pick up again next week after the sentencing. As a, and I don't want to get too personal here, but as a professional woman who obviously has to deal with uh, situations where there are lots of men and a men-dominated business, have you noticed a change in behavior in the last couple of years since all this stuff started to surface? I think that men are more aware. I've cer- certainly seen a change in behavior on how HR departments are dealing with this to make sure... HR departments are all over this. Well, they are, and, you know, they've had to really define what um, bad behavior is and what, what behavior is acceptable and what behavior is unacceptable. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, meetings that you must attend. You have to write down on a piece of paper that you understood the policy, and therefore, if somebody complains about it, and you've said that you've understood it, that could potentially be a problem for you. So I think it's very, very important that companies define their behavioral policy so that people understand, well, you know, uh, a guy might think, well, what I can't compliment a woman anymore. And I think that a lot of guys are, are, are starting to feel very, very uh, reticent about doing that. But I think that there's also a, a very fine line between giving a woman a compliment and making it sound salacious. So I think that there's an overall understanding that has to occur. And, and that also goes to your industry question, Scott. You know, how do we prevent this or is this going to happen in other industries? If there is a general understanding and companies take it upon themselves in order to educate their employees, 
that will go a long way to uh, to a further understanding. You know, it's interesting. I, I opened the door for a woman the other day, and she smiled and said, "Thanks, chivalry isn't dead." Now, uh, you know, at that, that point, could have been me because that's something I would say. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and but I, you know, I honestly hesitate now. And yet I'm thinking about this. It's like, why would I hesitate? Because if it was a guy and we both hit there at the same time, I'd do the same thing for a man uh, or anybody coming through the door. It doesn't, you know, you don't have to be a a boy scout and an elderly woman in order to make this happen. But where is that line now? What can people do? What is everybody just neutral? We're just, it's, you know, we're sexless. We're, we're, we're genderless here. I think that there's common courtesy. I think that we do know the difference between what is common courtesy, i.e. holding open a door. Uh, you know, if I go first, I don't care who's behind me. I'm going to make sure that I hold the door open. For yeah, them. yeah. Um, you know, I don't think that we, you know, that's getting very granular, although it's a good question to ask. I mean, people are going to ask it. And I, I was once talking to some guy at a party and saying, oh, you know, I, it was a really odd conversation, you know. I just sometimes you know, I just, you know go up to a friend and you know I want to give her a kiss and yep, yep. and and I went well and she you know didn't find that funny but you know listen you have a good sense of humor would you find that funny I went no I don't find it funny now and I'd never found it funny then mm. and I don't understand why you would think that invading somebody's personal space at any time at any point not just now when people are more sensitive to it but even before. Uh, would be okay. So I, I, I do think that there are certain behaviors that have become entrenched in society that both men and women think are okay. And generally, there's just been a sort of, well, boys will be boys or girls will be girls, so we should excuse that behavior. And I think that that's going to come under a lot of scrutiny. So no kissing allowed? Well, it depends. If you know me, then yes. <laughs> if you're my husband. If you have to question it, don't that. go there. Yeah, if you have to question and wonder if it's a good idea, it's yeah, probably, probably better not to. There you go. All right, that's good advice. Alyssa Freeman has been with us. Alyssa PR. As always, Alyssa, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's uh, get down to Belleville and find out what's happening in the area. Uh, Tyandagana Mohawk Territory blockades today process, OPP in the process of taking those down. Let's bring in Camille Caramelli, digital video journalist with Global News and on the line now. Camille, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Just describe what's going on down there and what you're seeing. Well, you caught us at uh, a much calmer time, Scott, and um, what was transpiring earlier this morning. Uh, there were a couple of, uh, well, at least uh, we counted eight arrests or so of the protesters here in Tyndanega, where the blockade has been set up along this uh, very key rail corridor uh, here that's been stopping BNCN rails uh, trains from coming through. Now, what we see uh, is a bit more of a peaceful scene where CN is actually here. What looks like they appear to be inspecting the tracks and making sure everything is safe and sound uh, because it has been weeks since I've had uh, access to that stretch of railway. And so it almost appears that uh, they might be looking to get trains back on track, literally uh, almost ASAP, because as we know, we've done several reports on the economical in- impact uh, this uh, this stagnant uh, set of trains have had on, uh, you know, not just Ontario, but also in Canada. Lots of small and large businesses haven't been able to get access to their goods because the trains have been at a complete standstill. And so now it looks like uh, they're trying to get things going as soon as possible. Uh, there are uh, a group of protesters that are still here. Now, we saw a large cluster this morning go head-to-head and face-to-face with police officers. Uh, there was a number that were arrested, possibly being uh, a, a bit um, aggressive, I should say, in terms of resisting arrest. And uh, it, it was really tough to tell. We were just basing, basing it off of a, a live Facebook feed because what police did was they rode in and then they kind of just cut off uh, the media's line of sight with a couple of vehicles and then started making arrests. So uh, we we weren't able to really see through a, a very critical lens as to what was happening behind the, those vehicles. But then uh, they also told some people to go home, uh, some protesters to head on home, and they did just that peacefully. And then there, there are those that stuck around. So right now we're seeing how that transpires. Uh, those that are sticking around uh, are still watching how police 
are uh, handling the next uh, few minutes or next few hours or so. And uh, as of now, CN Rail is also here, uh, some employees investigating the tracks and making sure it's okay for trains to hop back onto. Camille, are there still, you said there's still protesters there. Are there still, is there still evidence of the blockade there? Uh, we saw some machinery there and, and some, you know, temporary setup and stuff. Has any of that been removed yet? Absolutely. So uh, most of that, if not all of it, has not been torn down. There were several tents as well as lots of flags and uh, a couple of what looked like snow clouds that were set up very close to the tracks. And uh, this whole time, there was no actual tents or uh, anything on the tracks itself. But, uh, you know, CN had said it's too close to the tracks to run any trains through. So it looks like uh, we're even seeing, as I'm speaking to right now, Scott, I'm seeing police take down some of the flags. And uh, it, it looks like they haven't started taking down the tents just quite yet, but uh, they are in and out of the tents. So it might be that they're trying to, uh, you know, no, no media have been allowed inside the tents, or not very many, at least in the last few days, they've been very against the media having access to uh, the camp itself. But it looks like they might be trying to clear the tents so that they can start disassembling them. And uh, we'll see how that goes and how that's responded to. I should also note that we recently saw uh, a social media uh, outcry or uh, just calling on uh, Mohawk Tyendinaga protest supporters to meet them down here and continue the protest. So uh, the question then remains is, you know, they did uh, what the OPP did, what they intended to do in terms of um, kind of dispersing uh, the protesters. But how long will that last if they're making a, a public and a social media um you know, post uh, to gather people here so that they can continue protesting. Uh, we have heard that there had other been other protests that have pop up. Any more news on that? As you were mentioning, as this one comes down, other ones going up. Right, and we're keeping a pretty close eye on this one here. But there is what we've been calling a Camp B here, and uh, you got to excuse the loud noise here. There's uh, two massive towing trucks, as I'm talking to you right now, that just rolled on in into this gravel very narrow road here and uh, it looks like they're going to be used to uh, take down some of the uh, the vehicles that have been parked close to the tracks as part of the camp it looks like we're going to see some action here at this hour as well but um, you know there is a, a, a site b or a camp b further down the tracks that we've also been keeping an eye on it's been much smaller but we haven't seen any arrests happen there quite yet it's been much more of a peaceful gathering there and it looks like they're trying to talk it out so that they can uh, close down that camp as well, but in a, a bit more of a peaceful manner. Uh, you mentioned they're obviously trying to get rail uh, moving as quickly as possible. Any word from anyone at CN when that might happen? Yeah, they haven't given us an exact idea yet. They've been quite mum, uh, and so have OPP, because I think uh, also it seems like it's so fluid and it's happening now that they haven't even gotten their heads together as to what a timeline might look like. I'm seeing... Uh, CN Rail employees actually inspecting and investigating the tracks right now as I'm talking to you. So they might have a better idea or an answer as to when you can get trains back on those tracks uh, as soon as those employees finish their uh, investigation. And once again, this is just all observational. CN nor OPP have given us an exact idea, but we're just seeing things develop here and, and kind of making our own assumptions and, uh, and conclusions here. All right, Camille Caramelli has been with us, digital video journalist with Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on all of this. Camille, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, thank you for your time. Uh, let's bring in Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP and Canadians for Affordable Energy. He is with us now. Dan, how are you? Your thoughts on what is happening today? Well, it sounds like uh, we got a bit of a Somebody's coming in here. Uh, can you hear me well? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. It sounds like something's playing on my end here. Okay, we'll fix uh, that for you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so, well, I, <laughs> a little bit like the jazz going across the country today at all these blockades. So, yeah, yeah, one comes down or is in the process of coming down, but others seem to be popping up. I note that the Port of Vancouver's rail lines are now being blocked. Kamloops is being blocked. Montreal may have several locations where... Uh, there may be a rail end now, uh, some stalling of traffic along major urban uh, thoroughfares uh, on the roads. So, yeah, I sense that this is uh, far from over and that uh, it, it looks like the proverbial uh, whack-a-mole where you take one 
down only to have several others pop up along the way having the same effect which is that a company like CN Rail is not going to give the all clear unless it's absolutely sure the shenanigans uh, are, are far done. Uh, kind of odd that at the beginning of all of this, when uh, the opposition said these blockades come need to come down, uh, the prime minister then said, we don't tell the police what to do. Then on Friday, he came out and said the blockades need to come down. And then it was announced over the weekend that they would be moving in and doing just that. How does he square this circle? Well, he doesn't have to because he has a litany of followers uh, and certainly those uh, who are uh, well paid to uh, to ensure that his government is defended. Um, I don't need to get into names because that wouldn't be helpful, but the reality here is that he can pretty much say anything he wants. Uh, the rea- for, for many, uh, it's it's amazing uh, that on the same day that his the tactics of his groups of authors and others that are around him have, and including a good number of his caucus members, aimed at killing the tech frontier uh, oil project uh, this morning or last evening. Tech decided to throw in the towel and save its reputation and not have to go down the throat of a major battle with uh, the public and uh, PR firms, etc. So they decided to, to pull a $20 billion investment in Canada's resource sector. And that really is a long line of other concerns. Uh, meld that in with an already approved natural gas pipeline uh, entwine that with uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which you and I have talked about many times. Everyone's saying it's it's a go. As I've said many times before, it ain't a go, and it isn't a go until we can be assured it can be built. It's pretty clear that it won't be built, or it can't be built, because it's uh, uh, it, it looks like we're at loggerheads uh, with environmentalists who clearly have uh, uh, smelled blood and now recognize that uh, they can protest almost with impunity up to the point where the country is virtually uh, on its economic knees, as was the case with the Tyanadaga uh, blockade uh, stopping propane shipments from getting to eastern Canada. So uh, you brought up the uh, the tech resources uh, plan that was uh, the, the, the company has pulled back on now. Tell us what this was, and did it appear as if the Liberal government was going to reject this? Was that was what happened here? Yeah, so over the past several years, uh, tech uh, had uh, proposed to build a 260,000-barrel-a-day plant, state-of-the-art uh, mining of Canadian oil resources, and that would be heavy oil out of Alberta. Of course, pipelines were always an issue, uh, but given that the Trans Mountain was going, uh, trend, and of course, uh, the President Trump has uh, finally approved, uh, and uh, Keystone XL was on its way, uh, and of course, rail capacity was increasing, it made the project quite viable, especially at a time when countries that have heavy oil, Iran, Venezuela, Mexico, are all incapable of producing oil. Uh, the opportunity over the next several years was excellent for this particular pro, uh, proposal. However, um, not only do we have authors and Nobel laureates, obviously people who never heat their homes and never use transportation or take planes that use fossil fuels, uh, coming out against this uh, with uh, Liberal caucus members behind the scenes, uh, pledging or threatening a mutiny, something that they could never do and have never done on any other issue in the past. Uh, I think Tech Frontier made a decision. Uh, what's the point of fighting? The same way Kinder Morgan said, we're out of here. You guys want to, you can't get your, your act together. We're pulling the plugs. Uh, so in this case, Frontier did the same. Uh, potentially $20 billion of investments. That's over the next several years. Tens of thousands of jobs that aren't just temporary jobs, but permanent jobs. In an environment where everybody knows that between now and 2050, the world demand for oil is going to increase. On the same day that you, uh, Moscow has predicted that it will be able to build uh, two plants that will push out another 150,000 barrels a day, and at the same time where Saudi Arabia is increasing its building of pipelines, same time where Qatar is doing the same thing, the same time the U.S. is reaching all-time record highs for markets that exist, Canada's decided to be uh, woke uh, Boy Scouts and Girl Guides and decided to pretty much scupper uh, what is its most important, beneficial, profit-making, uh, public funding uh, projects um, uh, unavailable and offline. So I think we've, we've got a real problem this morning. Uh, we have not only blockades that are going to continue to pop up, but we now have a pretty clear indication to the world markets that Canada is out of the energy business, it's out of the mining business, uh, if you have any ideas, go invest your money elsewhere. So I think the real question is, how do we prepare for the fallout, which is not so much a political one, but an economic one. 
how do we pay for our hospitals? How do we pay for our schools? How do we pay for our pensions? How do we pay to maintain our standard of living when you've basically thrown... You just tax the rich, industry. Dan. That's all you do. You tax everybody. Well, you tax them uh, or they leave. <laughs> and I think you're going to see that. Or, in the case of Alberta, get familiar with the word Buffalo Declaration. Yeah. Because I think it's had enough. And I, I you know what? I've never lived in Alberta, hardly been there in my life. I've fought the oil companies over the years in the way no one else has. This is a crock. And uh, this country is in for a very, very serious awakening. The likes of which uh, would make the 1995 separation referendum uh, a walk in the park. This is a very serious dislocation of the economy and the country. People are badly wounded by this. And I think. Uh, we can sit back and take it easy, but when the bondholders start saying, hey, you're incurring too much debt, you have the means to support it, raise your interest rates, and people start to see their mortgage rates are heading up, I think uh, the whole lot of us will start to smarten up here in eastern Canada. Uh, they were supposed to receive an answer from the government within a couple of days on the, the Tech Resources uh, project. Why did they jump early? Were they that, was it that obvious that the government was going to say no? It was obvious that the government's going to say no. It was obvious that the signals were coming from all the lefties in the media. And I don't mean media. I mean uh, people like Paul, uh, Laure- uh, Nobel laureates and others, authors, and uh, the usual suspects who, of course, hypocritically uh, never, ever have a second or third home, never you know, heat their homes with natural gas or with uh, fossil fuels. As I mentioned earlier, don't drive vehicles around, never went to Oslo to pick up their uh, their, their, their awards, uh, you know, using uh, windmills or, uh, or, or sailboats. Hmm. All of these folks were lining up one after another. And the government of Canada had about a year to give a decision. It could have done so last year. It could have done so two, three months ago. It waited the last second. So I think the, uh, the die was cast. And it's pretty clear that the federal liberals, their pals in the NDP and the, uh, the bloc and uh, the socialists over in the Green Party all want us to meet the zero emissions build a lot of uh, nuclear plants because we you know, something they don't want to have. But we want zero emissions. We don't want any more fossil fuels by 2050. And uh, we're going to live up to that, whether the other countries of this world don't. I tweeted yesterday, by the way, something that came from Professor Dr. Patrick Moore, co-founder of Greenpeace, who thinks the whole thing's a crock uh, and has fought Greenpeace, his organization. Sounds familiar. I fought the Liberal Party. He um, pointed out yesterday that between Europe and Asia, there will be a total of 2,000 more coal plants being built over the next five to ten years as Canada and woke Canadians decide it's cool to impose a carbon tax. So listen, we can all be the International Boy Scouts and as I said, Girl Guides. At the end of all of this, we're going to do a lot of damage to ourselves and we will accomplish absolutely nothing in terms of reducing emissions. In the meantime, uh, let's start to think about what's happened here in February. Uh, A one-quarter point loss in the GDP of the economy, people who are out of work, uh, Western Canada that now is on its knees, uh, equalization payments that may not be forthcoming, and of course, uh, everyone asking for more money at a time when there's less of it to be made available, certainly because we're not creating any wealth in this country. We've decided it's best to basically ask foreign countries to provide us our solar panels, our electric cars, and of course, our windmills. Where does this leave the Prime Minister, considering, uh, again, he defended uh, all 98 uh, recommendations with truth and reconciliation, he, he certainly wooed this community for votes and such, um, so it seems that he hasn't pleased those, those people, and he certainly hasn't pleased those who are supporting the energy in his industry in Canada. Where does that leave him? Well, today it leaves him as a, as a hypocrite with no one happy with him, but of course an election will change all of that. Um, I mentioned earlier that $50 million in local initiatives for local journalists uh, meant to help small you know, papers survive and small radio stations, others survive, has now been redirected, repurposed by the federal Liberal government to give $50 million bucks to anybody who's willing to write an article, talk about climate change, and to make it a bigger issue than it really is. Uh, little wonder that people are obsessed with something that hardly even made a dent 10, 15 years ago. Little wonder that in a country like the United States, Climate change reaches 18 out of 19 of the top issues, according to most Americans. I can't think that we're that much different than they are. What, may, what is amazing, however, that we're not meeting our targets, and I think for many people, um, in a very cynical way, uh, Trudeau has played the game of trying to be all things to all people, yeah. and now all people and all things are opposed to him. He's oversold everything and underperformed on everything. I mean, yeah, so where, where do you go? And, uh, you know, the new boss, same as the old boss, throw in Chrystia Freeland, uh, and uh, everybody is going to be nice and happy. That's probably the only way out. But let's hope at the end of all of this we have learned a very valuable lesson. If you want to go down this road of trying to be trendy and trying to be green and all these all, all wonderful experimental things that usually 
uh, aren't well fit for Canada uh, and taxes the living daylight side of people, including a clean fuel standard that's coming any day now, 8 to 15 cents a litre, and that's just a start. You want to go down this road, you better be prepared, be prepared to pay for it. And I think most Canadians are all for this kind of stuff until they realize there's a cost associated with it. And that won't just come in the form of higher energy costs and higher food costs or uh, a lack of uh, employment or uh, companies moving out of the country. It's also likely to come in the form of things that we could not possibly imagine, and that's uh, the shutdown of our Canadian economy and the potential disruption of the Federation, the likes of which we've never seen. Is this issue about Indigenous communities, Indigenous uh, support or support for the wet and sweats and wet sweats and uh, wet sweat and chiefs, or is this about anti-pipeline protesters who are tugging on these issues? I wish it were for the Indigenous people who would have benefited in the tens of millions, if not billions, of dollars in what is firm, contractual, agreed to uh, majority of Indigenous people uh, benefit. Uh, agreements that was designed to give them power over their pipeline, power over the ability to profit from the pipeline and to use and to manage it responsibly for generations to come. All of that has been basically taken up uh, like an old piece of paper, trashed, and with it, the prosperity and potential for Indigenous reconciliation. Uh, So we got it wrong on both fronts. We've kowtowed to a small group of people who pretend to represent a group uh, that is already very much committed and signed on the dotted line and understand the full impact of selling natural gas, LNG, to China and to India so that at the end of the day they reduce their reliance on heavy fossil fuels such as coal and uh, heavy bunker oil. The reality here is that this is so, so sad in so many ways, but you have a distortion of the facts driven by international organizations and let's, let's not kid ourselves. These people make their money in carbon trade emissions. It's a total fraudulent system, and it's the very simple kind of system we saw in 2008 that brought the world economy to its knees. Uh, these people are not virtuous. They are looking to make money by their carbon cap trade emissions, and that's what we're looking at. They have markets on their own, and take your pick, uh, whether that be uh, Goldman Sachs or whether that be any of these large uh, investment banks. They're all on, on board with this stuff because they know they're going to make a lot of money. Uh, at the same time, it's not a question of not putting money towards the energy sector. It's that they want to redirect money towards themselves so they make a fortune at the expense of the Canadian economy. And Canadians are sitting around like dumb suck, you know, <laughs> thumb-sucking dolts, uh, thinking this is a wonderful thing and the sky is falling. If you want government by Greta Thunberg, you don't need Greta. Just keep voting for Pierre, or rather for Justin Trudeau. Hmm. Uh, everybody has discussed how this is such a complex issue within the government of Canada and the Indigenous communities. Is this situation at least shedding more light on that discussion within the Indigenous communities on who represents them? Because it's always painted as Canada versus the Indigenous community, when in fact we now realize the majority of the Indigenous community wants this pipeline. Yeah. So well, look, uh, does, it at least advance, does it at least advance that discussion? First Nations are not a monolith. They are as diverse uh, in opinion as they are in regional representation, the composition of that representation. But by and large, they have supported the development of resources, particularly when it comes to having a direct and for the first time uh, ownership position in many of these. This is not about, you know, hey, uh, we'll pay you off, here's a rent, uh, talk you later. No, this is about taking matters where they need to be. This crosses your lands. We respect that. You control what, what happens there. And you work cooperatively with others as to how to best manage for the best outcomes. If you are concerned about water, air, uh, the environment, then tell us how to make this better. In fact, don't just tell us how to do it. Do it yourselves. Uh, they take ownership of this, and they have. So I don't like to talk about the First Nations and the Métis people, uh, you know, in the context of them as a whole unit. They're not. Mm-hmm. And as you can see, a very select small minority was hijacked and usurped by green NGOs and environmentalists and activists. And in some cases, out of Hamilton, uh, you have uh, anarchists that have made their the yeah. North Shore anarchists were involved mm-hmm. with uh, sending something I tweeted the other day. Uh, same group that uh, destroyed the pastry shop on that street back about a year ago Lock there street, in Hamilton. Yeah. It was mm-hmm. terrible what they did. Yeah. The same group wanted people to say within hours of hearing the OPP was going to uh, move on Tainadaga, 
uh, get out to uh, to Belleville, wear warm clothes, and see what we can do. Look, this is not about First Nations Indigenous issues. If anything, if it were about that, the decision would have been made long ago, yeah. as it had been, that uh, this is a this is a net good for all Indigenous people. But you have a couple of people who do not think that they have, they believe that they have some kind of a veto authority and they can stop something that the vast majority have already said they want to go on. Uh, if we're not going to respect the rule of law, we're not going to respect Indigenous people's own decisions, what order are we respecting? Who are we following in this country? Because it sure as hell isn't democracy. It sure as hell isn't the Indigenous people. It's a handful of people outside agitators uh, who just don't like the energy sector and who are damn committed to bringing uh, the energy sector in Canada to its knees. Funny, I don't see them protesting in Saudi Arabia, Russia, Qatar, or the United States. Only Canada. So it's time for Canadians to, uh, you know, maybe get a spine, uh, stand up, push back. You can't take the country into your own hands. I can't do it. Scott, you can't do it. The indigenous people that I know can't do it and didn't do it. Who hijacked the country? Well, I hate to tell you, Tainadaga, you may want to look at who's there. Because it isn't uh, local band members. They're very peaceful. I'm familiar with who they are. Some of them from Marysville, who, you know, forgot for issues of gasoline, I happen to know extraordinarily well. Um, these are not the people that did this. Some of these folks came out of the Kenosotaki Reserve out of Montreal. Uh, these are the warriors. These are, in many respects, linked to organized crime, gangs, and people who run guns. Funny, <laughs> we, we talk about... Uh, you know, new gun laws in this country. I won't go down that road. And how we're going to, you know, bring yeah. in a hand, I got a ban on, on, on handguns. Uh, tell me, will you enforce that on the reserves, especially the ones that kind of Sataki? I don't think so. Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP and Canadians for Affordable Energy. Dan, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Good to be here. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Jasmine Pickle, Ontario Director, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. She is with us now. Jasmine, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Thanks for having me. What did you find out with with your research here? And and I'm looking at uh, your press release here. The first one that comes to mind is Ontario. Uh, the Ontario government is firing teachers. They keep saying they're going to fire 10,000 teachers. Is that accurate? Absolutely not. So that's one of the favorite lines of the Ontario union bosses, um, the teachers union bosses. But what actually is happening is that the government has realized, um, you know, we need to curb over the last 20 years, uh, the number of teachers and administrators in Ontario's public schools has gone up by over 10,000, while we've seen student enrollment decline by more than 100,000 students. So, you know, teachers, administrators are going up and costs are going way up, while student enrollment for the last 20 years has almost pretty consistently been going down. Um, it's just, you know, finally, we have a government saying something needs to be done to address this. But at the same time, that is a cost saving measure. Um, what's actually happening is that uh, a lot of this will happen through attrition. So although the total number of teaching jobs will slightly decline, um, that's going to be done through attrition. No teacher will be fired in this province as a result of, of the changes to classroom sizes. And the government has even put out some money to ensure that no one, uh, no one does over, over this transition. So that's simply not true. Um, but just to back up a little bit for your reader, uh, for your listeners, why were why the Canadian Taxpayers Federation felt that we needed to fact check these unions is because probably a lot of your listeners have seen their advertisements. They're everywhere. These unions are really well funded. They've got very deep pockets. Um, they're right now. They're over the past ninety days. They've been the top political advertiser on Facebook in all of Canada. Um, so they're spending more than any political party, any government, any politician. Um, to try to convince, you know, to try to pressure taxpayers to give them more money when the reality shows, as our fact check proves, that they've already got a lot of money in the education system. It just isn't being spent wisely. Uh, it's not about the money. It's about the kids. True? False? <laughs> so while we think that this is true for a lot of frontline teachers, the reality is that we need to understand that these unions do not exist to protect the children. Literally on the OSSTF's website, their mission statement, it states very clearly that they exist to protect and serve their membership. So we have to remember that, you know, what the union bosses want is higher pay for teachers, um, more teacher uh, jobs. But this And why is that? Because that generates more money for the union. 
Absolutely. So for OSSTF, for example, um, every teacher that uh, is in the secondary school union gives over 1.3% of their salary every year in union dues. So for the average teacher, uh, a high school teacher in Ontario, for example, that's about 1200 a year. And when we had this past Friday, 200,000 teachers going on strike, um, you can imagine that's over $200 million in funding that they're giving to their unions. So it's no wonder that the unions are, you know, fighting so viciously for more money. Um, you know, we see their union bosses, Sam Hammond earns, uh, and Harvey Bischoff earn, you know, nearly 200000 Harvey's 218000 a year um, in salary. So, you know, these are really paid, well-paid unions. Um, they have a really big interest in, in getting more money. If you think of Steelworkers, for example, when they unionize, they don't say, you know, it's about the steel. We really care about the steel. It's about their working conditions. And that's the exact same thing for the teachers union bosses. But in their case, they like to tell taxpayers that it's about kids so that there's more of an emotional argument there. But the reality is this is about compensation, not education. Uh, Ontario government is making cuts to education. We hear cuts, 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 cuts. Absolutely not. So as we've heard the Premier and the Education Minister say repeatedly, education funding has reached an all-time high in this province. So they've increased education uh, spending by $1.2 billion, more than what Kathleen Wynne spent um, in her 2018 budget. And although recently a, a so-called fact check came out from the CBC saying, well, not all education spending goes you know, right into classrooms, that's true. But when you look at the... Um, the grants for student needs, which is the primary funding model that uh, the government uses to go into classrooms, they've increased funding for Ontario schools by hundreds of millions of dollars. So there's simply, um, you know, it's that and that's the very basis of the union's argument is that the Ford government has reduced funding. It just isn't true. But they've, you know, spent so much money on these advertisements that whenever I tell listeners, you know, to radio programs or when I'm talking to someone on the street or someone I know and say, actually, did you know that Doug Ford has brought education funding to an all-time high in Ontario? He spends even more than the Liberals spent before him. People look at me like a deer in the headlights, like they they yeah. don't believe it. And it's because these unions have dumped millions upon millions into advertising campaigns, um, telling lies, frankly. Interesting uh, that, uh, Jasmine, I have a listener that has sent me a old Hamilton Spectator, Daddy, did uh, Monday, January 7th, 2013. The headline is, teachers told to push the pause button, extracurricular, extracurricular activities are in limbo as unions protest impose government's uh, contracts by the McGuinty government. Sam Hammond again quoted in this article, this is the same stuff that we hear year after year after year, and this is under the teachers' premier Dalton. McGinty. It's on the front page. Exactly. So they're, you know, well, one thing you can't uh, accuse them of is discrimination, because regardless of political stripe, they always seem to be asking for more. And what I think is the saddest part of all of this, you know, the teachers are very well represented. They have a very strong and powerful union, but the taxpayers don't have a union. So that's why I feel so privileged to be in this position where I can speak on behalf of average hardworking taxpayers to defend their interests. So, you know, to give you an example, um, on average, teachers in Ontario retire at 59 and they take on average a $42,000 a year pension. Um, Ontario, average Ontario taxpayers who earn a fraction of what teachers earn, a third of them don't have any retirement savings at all, and half of them are living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, We have some of the top paid teachers on the planet in Ontario, yet Ontario is the largest subnational debtor on the planet. So I don't think that it's fair that these teachers who in some cases earn double what the average Ontario taxpayer earns, that they're asking for bigger raises on the backs of already aching taxpayers. I got actually Sam Hammond, or uh, sorry, it was Harvey Bischoff, to admit, I asked him, look, the province is broke. We ha- we have a big debt. We already are going to have a $9 billion deficit this year. Where do you want this money to come from? Because the total price tag on their demands is $7 billion. So I just asked, where do you want this money to come from? Higher taxes or more debt? And he was actually quite honest when he said, you know, I want more taxes. Why don't we reinstitute cap and trade, which I think opens a whole other can of worms wow. that he wants to use an environmental program to fund bigger to fund teachers. Sam teachers. Hammond has saying, said the same thing, though. He again, he goes, they don't have a spending problem. He says they have a revenue problem. They need to raise taxes. 
Um, also, the secondary school president, uh, union president said on this show when I questioned that this happens, as I just mentioned with this newspaper, whether it's an NDP government, a PC government or a liberal government, he said they're all, and I'm quoting, they're all out to raid the government. And again, this article that I'm reading to you from 2013, it's the same thing over and over again. Okay, what about teachers need a 2% raise? That's inflation. <laughs> so teachers are some of the top earners in this province. Um, Top-earning teachers earn a total salary of over 100000 a year. And while a lot of your listeners might think, oh, that's just, you know, a few lucky teachers downtown Toronto. No, there are over 10,000 Ontario teachers earning a salary of over 100000 a year. But when you factor their total compensation, which is salary plus compensation plus benefits, top-earning teachers in Ontario earn more than 120 thousand dollars a year and that's a lot of money considering the average ontario ontarian earns fifty nine thousand a year so when they say you know we're just asking for a modest two percent raise this contract will last three years so for those ten thousand teachers that are on the sunshine list right now they'll be getting a six thousand dollar raise over the three-year contract period if this goes through so it's really important for the government um, you know, to stop this right now, because Ontarians simply cannot afford it. And I would also remind your listeners that QP, which is, you know, represents janitorial staff and, and some ECEs, which, you know, these are some of the lowest paid workers mm-hmm. in, in the education system. They already agreed to a 1% raise. So the fact that teachers that are some of the top earners in this province, uh, you know, OSSTF members are on average 92000 a year, um, and the elementary teachers aren't that far off. Um, for them to demand that they need a 2% cost of living increase ignores the obvious fact that these teachers are already very well compensated. Jasmine Pickles been with us, Ontario Director of Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Uh, Jasmine, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks so much, Scott. All right. Ontario Taxpayers Federation releasing these uh, facts. The Ontario government is making cuts to education. False. Uh, It's not about the money. It's about the kids. Uh, 80% of the education funding goes into salaries. Uh, Ontario government is firing teachers. Also false. So, uh, again, it's just the same old stuff that I've read from the newspaper here from 2013. It's the same old story. It's not about the teachers. It's not about the kids. It's about the union membership staying strong, and that means hiring more teachers whether we need them or not. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, a new McMaster study says that 7 out of 10 Canadians don't use condoms. What? It's 2020. I thought that everybody learned all about this stuff uh, way back in the 80s and 90s. Let's bring in uh, Dr. Tina Fetner, Associate Professor and Chair of Sociology, McMaster University, and President of the Canadian Sociolo- Sociological Association, and is with us now. Tina, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. So seven in Canadians don't use condoms. Would, these, would this include people who are in relationships? Yes, this includes all Canadians, all Canadian adults. Right. So we did a study a survey of Canadians across the board, and this is all adults 18 and over. And I also want to just make very clear that we're just talking about um, penile vaginal intercourse, mm-hmm. sexual interactions, not same sex sex, which is different study altogether. So this headline kind of isn't quite representative of the study, is it? In the sense that, because I'm reading off the CBC, 7 in 10 Canadians don't use condoms, McMaster University, but if, you know, are the majority of those people in some sort of relationship? Yes, well, it's true that people in relationships use condoms less than Mm -hmm. people who are um, just having uh, more casual sex or... Um, meeting people for the first time, and that is not a surprise. It's kind of consistent with, um, you know, what other condom studies have found in the past. One of the things to keep in mind, though, about whether we should be worried or not about what our condom use rates are is the uh, sort of trend that's going on alongside this study, which is that we know that um, the rates at which we're getting sexually transmitted infections is on the rise lately. So, uh, so, 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 how are we to arrive at these conclusions, considering where we've come from in the education that has been involved? Right. Well, I am. Uh, I don't know how old your listening audience is, but I am definitely somebody who was uh, became an adult in the 1980s and was fully, fully uh, socialized into 
the brand new safer sex curriculum at the time that yep. was condoms, condoms, condoms. And I think that if you look at the data on sexually transmitted infections, that kind of public health intervention was very successful. Rates of not just HIV, which of course was what they were targeting mm-hmm. in the 1980s, but all um, all the sexually transmitted infections that we track uh, went down after the 1980s. So and have we, we become lax in, in education on this? Uh, has well, uh, Go ahead. Oh, yeah. Well, I this is exactly the question. Yeah. We don't know the answer to that question because while the government of Canada tracks um, sexually transmitted infections, it doesn't measure condom use. Mm. And so we don't have great data in Canada, and we certainly don't have data every year to look at condom use over time. You'd think considering what was done, as you said, during the 1980s and such, that this would ju- you just want to follow all that up to see where you are. You would think. And it's possible that condom use has um, sort of stayed steady. And even so, um, you know, maybe other kinds of uh, risks have caused this little uptick. But I think that the, the fear is that, um, that our diligence about how regularly we use condoms is going down, and so that that's what's causing the uptick. Uh, the study also found Gen X and millennials in Canada reported the most safe sex. That has to be encouraging. It is encouraging. We have um, about 70% of our 18 to 35-year-olds reporting that they used condoms um, at least once in their last 10 uh, sexual encounters. And so it's better than the 30% that is the general Canadian. But young people also have the highest rates of sexually transmitted infections or about three times as likely to get a sexually transmitted infection regular uh, relative to the general population. So it's... um, their increased condom use is right in there with their increased risk. So as you look back at this, what did you learn from this? What's the purpose here? Well, what we were hoping to do is add just one piece of data into what we hope could be a more robust picture. We, um, you know, the Stats Canada has collected some data. It's about 15 years old now. Other studies have focused on um, same-sex interactions or sex workers or young people sort of subpopulations, and we thought it would be really important to have a sort of population-wide measure of condom use, and I hope that um, we can continue to collect data um, into the future so we can see any changes over time. So is this something like the non-smoking campaign? You just have to keep doing this year after year after year, otherwise people just kind of forget about it all. Yeah, well, young people are coming of age every year. And mm-hmm. so they need the same they need the same education that we got in the 1980s. One of the things that we found in our study was that if you had um, condom education, if you had education on how to use a condom, you were more likely to report that you were using condoms in your last 10 sexual encounters. And so we know that condom education is effective, and we have to um, we have to be diligent and keep it up. Dr. Tina Fetner has been with us, Associate Professor and Chair, Sociology, McMaster University, on condom use uh, in Canada. And obviously a message we have to keep reinforcing. Tina, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.